Women making waves. I'm feeling in a very sorry state. Mm. Susie? Oh no, why, why Linda? I mean, that's... Well, it's because I've just come back from two weeks off. Ah. And I hate that feeling where you've looked forward to a holiday, you know, and you've gone two weeks away. No matter where it is, even if it's not very exciting, the coming back. I know it's kind of like first world problems, but it is verging on the, the dreadful, really. It's funny you should say that, Linda, because I was only just talking about that with one of my daughters because they came back from holiday about two weeks before me. And when I arrived back, I was still on that high a day after mm. thinking, yeah, this is great. I feel really good. And they were saying, oh, this is just, I don't, I don't know what to do. I, do I need another holiday? Or I don't, I mean, And that lost state, isn't it? That real yeah. lost state. And now... Just like you, I'm feeling like it. Three weeks after coming back. It's oh, weird, well, isn't see, it? I came back on the bank holiday and didn't even enter my cases. Oh, I mean, that's how right. bad it was. And then when I went back to work on the Tuesday, I was like a sulky teenager. <laughs> I almost had to be prodded towards my desk. <laughs> and I had a face on me. And everyone's going, oh, oh, you're back then. Did you have a nice time? And I was going, yeah. I bet they're thinking, they're trying to approach you and ask you nice things about your holiday. And then you walk away and they're thinking, why is she so unhappy? I, know, I, mean, I wish she was say. still away, the yeah, miserable. Yeah. Well, I wasn't <laughs> going to say that, Linda, but you said it. Well, yeah. But That's on that exactly note, though. how I felt. And it's did, not got much better for the rest of the week. I mean, can we ask you now, without getting the, the grr look, did mm-hmm. you have a nice holiday? Can you remember yeah, yeah, that it was very far nice. back? I mean, the only thing I would say is that I've sat here working, looking out on a sunshiny day after a sunshiny day. What happens when I go off on holiday? The sunshine no. disappears. And the further north we went, with every mile we travelled, oh. the temperature plummeted. Oh. It, it was just kind of like in a, in a graph. It was just going all the way down. And then, of course, people in Scotland are going, hey, it's beautiful, it's 19 <laughs> degrees. And I was wearing a cardigan going, 19 oh. degrees is not hot. Oh, it might Linda. be we're up here, but it's not hot. We've just been you know, down in 30-something, 30 32 and a left. 19 when I got there. I mean, it's 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 not fair, Susie. You are one of only a few amount of people in the UK that have experienced not the sunshine this year. That is quite funny, Linda. You've got a lot. I know we shouldn't. Typical. It is yeah. typical. Typical but, of me. Yeah. If you wanted to find yourself in a place where you would think that is a holiday moment, where would it be? Would it be say in and by the fireplace drinking something nice after a nice walk in the in the day or would you like to be by the sea there's no such thing as a nice walk susie but <laughs> i quite like i quite like the seaside but i don't like the sand right you don't have to have sand on a beach you, know. you can have pebbles oh you don't want pebbles oh. to hurt your feet Oh, oh no, no! Well, no, if you not if you've got the right shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so, what pleases you? What does it take, Chris, to please you to go on holiday? I don't know. Oh, I don't know what pleases me anymore. Actually, since I got back, yeah, there has been no pleasing me. Right, and I've been very, very grumpy. Okay. Okay. And what about you? You you don't look very grumpy at all. No, no, You're I don't look very pleased grumpy. with yourself. I- yeah. <laughs> She says very enviously. <laughs> I am pleased with myself, though I have, as I said, I've been feeling quite a little bit low after having 
nice holiday and we did get the sun linda i can't i can't get away from the fact we did have the sun and i came back and people were saying oh you look so brown suit but now oh, the, really? the tan's going even the cream doesn't stop it and it's not good for your skin just to mm. cheer myself up a bit <laughs> the rain's quite good for your skin i find so yeah that's true yeah you're on the upside yeah you're probably probably worse off really with all your sunshine and your sand thanks linda thanks linda always look on the bright side of life (laughs) (laughs) and talking about on the bright side of life we have two really really interesting guests don't we yes we do we do today we're going to be meeting Danae Shell. Danae, very, very interesting woman. She saw many examples of workplace discrimination and harassment. And through sheer frustration, she co-founded and is a CEO of Vala. And it's a legal platform for workers. So people can go on there and get really cost-effective advice. People that might not be able to afford to go to law firms mm. for their employment advice. I think that's a great idea. Absolutely. I think it's important. And I'm so pleased that we are going to be speaking to Danae Shell. And we also meet Berenice Smith. Now, she is owner of Hello Lovely and she is also a podcast presenter like us. Like us, Linda. Like us. She is, I know. The podcast is called The Full Stop. It's a social design project that raises awareness of involuntary childlessness. And that's all Mm. here. We're making waves this week. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast. Brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. A self-confessed anorak and a geek when it comes to creative design, graphic and web designer, writer, stained glass artist and all-purpose creative, that's Berenice Smith and she's our guest today. Solving problems, of course, is her specialist subject, is the part where Berenice likes the most. Now, having spent two years at Cambridge School of Art for a Master's in Graphic Design and Topography and gaining a huge amount of work practice from then on, Berenice then set up her own company about four years ago. And the company is called Hello Lovely. It's such a great name. So a huge, huge, big hello to you, Berenice. Welcome to yeah, Women welcome. Making Thank Waves. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be mm-hmm. here. Very, very honoured and thrilled. We first met you at an event in mm-hmm. Cambridge yes. last year, I think. It was run by Gemma Wilcox, wasn't it? That wonderful evening we had and you were presenting then. Oh, yes, it was. Uh, yeah, it was um, yeah, all about remember, resilience yeah, in that, really that, nice. that thing that we, yes, that we, that have, video. we still have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pandemic, <laughs> wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think we're still doing it. Yes, exactly. I know. It was such mm. a lovely evening and we met yes. some wonderful people, you. including you. Now, I know I what I would love to touch on as well but you, uh-huh. you run a yeah. podcast too which um, I didn't put in the intro but I want to mention it because I think it's equally as important and it's called yes. Full Stop. It is about childlessness Childless. yes it is yeah yeah yes. but first of all just to kick off this lovely time we're having with you tell us about how you got into graphic and web designing because I think you have a little bit of a a story when you were very, 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 very young. Yes, with crayons. (laughs) Yes. It was a blue Peter badge, actually. I've got three of them. How nerdy is that? I wasn't allowed (laughs) to watch Magpie or 
practice was or anything. And I, I used to go around to my best friend Julie's house, actually, and go around there and watch things like Don't See You Make Peace and Magpie and Dismals. But at home, we were watching BBC. Blue Peter was like a big thing in our house. And my mum used to make us kind of draw stuff and do things and send them in. And I think I've got, I'm going to check whether I should have checked. I think I've got three Blue Peter badges. I want to just wear one, actually, see if I can get free into anywhere, because I think that was what you got them for. So <laughs> yes. that's kind of when it started off. And then later on, oh, goodness, we had career talks at school, at secondary school. And I really struggled with that because I just didn't want to do anything that they suggested. You know, and there's that era, I suppose, you know, be, being of an age where it was kind of like nurses for girls, you know, that sort of thing, and, and mm. you know, train drivers. And I thought, I just fancy that, don't you? train driver or something like that but I saw a video popped up about being a commercial artist and I can vividly remember that being a light bulb moment that's what I want to do it was the only thing that had appealed to me in I think three years of watching these these things sat there every Thursday morning <laughs> thinking they've got to be a career somewhere and then they just showed you videos and you had to sort of find something you know and three years of this yeah that sort of started it and I was quite sure I wanted to my dad actually um, worked for the railway and one of the people that he worked with and I have to give credit to him was a chap called Jerry Floyce who was working with him on the ticket office at Cambridge Station and he ended up eventually being described as the late Queen Mother and he used to send through these beautifully drawn cards they're all calligraphic cards they were absolutely gorgeous and he was a big influence on my life growing up too because everything he did was beautiful and I just loved the way that he'd moved from being you know working on a ticket hall to suddenly being described to the Queen Mother and that was all part of probably my life. Did you find then when you were growing up that obviously when you discovered that this is what you want to do and when you realised that's what it was, did you get resistance to it or did you find that you could literally go along oh, with your, your a, a little bit. I think my parents were a bit bemused by it, I think. It was kind of, I think, tortured artists and an attic syndrome, that sort of thing, <laughs> I would imagine. I don't know. I never really asked them, to be honest. I think they just sort of thought, oh, gosh. Um, but I, they made me go and do all the, all the sensible stuff. So I've got an RSA2 in typing. If I had to do useful things before I could do anything else. And I think that actually is really good because it just meant that I had something just to fall back on. And yeah, so a little bit of resistance. But <laughs> I think no more than I think probably an awful lot of people listening to to this and many of my freelance friends will go yeah but most of my family don't even really quite know what being a freelance person is. or why would you want to set up a business what's wrong with you, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah there's there's that too you know and I think most of the people that I've met in in business world are very passionate about what they do and yeah. proud of that and it is their kind of identity uh, design is very much my identity it saved me so many times and I'm very very lucky to do something I love but also I think to get deeply interested in it and try and translate it in a way that it makes it accessible and fun to other people from starting off as a graphic designer now it's all computerized and things I mean it must have changed immensely I think it has, yeah. I mean, I remember the very first Mac arriving. In fact, I've got one in the loft, a Mac Classic. 
and they, they were kind of meant to be portable these things you, you go google them young young listeners go google yeah it has changed a lot the colors that you had were like you know, rgb bright reds and bright greens yeah. and lots of really dodgy stuff and it took sort of design to come in and to change the shape of the internet into something that we know now driven by design and designers who can code so it it does change it's always changing i'd like to think that the structure of design that learning and the history of design is still very present though that if people have a good grasp when they're coming in to design of those principles they can go far in fact it's odd because I've had somebody who lives very close to my house who has expressed an interest in work experience and I've given them some design work to do um, they're halfway between sixth form and then going up to university and it's so exciting I'm just so excited for them I'm like, oh, can I come with you <laughs> the beginning again because um, it's just so exciting to hear their journey and where they've come from but it's it's interesting to take it from their point of view in that transition period and that their briefs are given by their tutors and how they lack that lack of commercial experience and how you know the wheels fall off you know no no design job it would be wrong of me to sit here and say every design job I've done has been perfect it isn't there is stuff that goes wrong but with experience of course you know how to fix it or you can see it coming over the hill and go okay we need to just go this way let's swerve around this problem and do this instead but mm. It's lack of that awareness, I think, within education that does concern me because I think working practice in design could be quite ruthless. It's not an easy job to, yeah. And understanding what people want mm. as well, just translating yeah. what's in their head. That's to what... tricky, yeah, yeah, that's very tricky. I, yeah. I've been take boxes of Lego and toys and things to, to client meetings because they've got just too stuck or too hung up on something and you have to kind of get them out of that thought process and okay it's this mm. and you know let's play because actually playing sometimes is better than trying to sit here and with pencil and paper and a whiteboard or or a mac or pinterest let's play with something and see what we end up with that can sometimes be a different approach it's just trying to get people out of what they want for them and thinking about their audience because it's not my design it's not really their design it's actually the design that works for the people that they have under their as clients now or future clients you mentioned earlier about the craziness of going freelance or starting your own business <laughs> how, <Yeah. laughs> how did that actually come about then when did you, you take the plunge in that you alluded earlier on to the full stop and I guess it starts sort of somewhere prior to that. I was working for Pearson um, who were based in Harley, the parent group of, of Penguin and there was about 40 of us I think all made redundant very unexpectedly and I took my redundancy money and I thought we've been through six rounds of IVF at that point and miscarriages it hadn't worked and I had the redundancy money and I could either do one more round of IVF or do something else. And my husband and I had a very long conversation about his worry for my mental health, which was really, really poor at the time, and my physical health, because I've been through quite a lot of bad health over the IVF. It's not an easy process. And I'd ended up with something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which can be fatal. I'd had quite a lot of stuff going on with me. And I went for a job interview in London and it was a really hot day in July and I've never been so pleased to come back to Cambridge. It was a really good job. It was a well-paid job. It was in design. It was in publishing. It was kind of arguably, if I'm in a better place, I probably would have gone, yeah, I can't have it. But I thought, no, I don't want to do the train anymore. I don't want to go to London anymore. I've done that for 
years. It was hell. And I walked home or cycled home via East Road. And as Ang Lee Ruskin was there and it had master's degrees. And one of the things was listed was graphic design. And I thought, oh, and that's how I sort of ended up doing a master's degree. And that then gave me, I think, the confidence to say, okay, let's do something else because I couldn't carry on, I think, in the way that I was. I needed to find me again and who I was and my worth and my value. I'm not sure that necessarily sort of going, oh, set up a business is perhaps the thing to do because it's it's horribly risky and it leaves you exposed. But I think I needed to prove a point to myself that I have some talent, I had a value. And it was all around, I think, self-worth at the time I'd, I'd literally hit rock bottom I, I had hit rock bottom eight years ago I really hit rock bottom the rock bottom and had to claw my way back up that was eight years ago in March mm. and that kind of was a big part of probably kind of yeah the design was a big part of I think and Hello Lovely is a huge part of my life because I think it's given me something back and of course I've met some mm. brilliant people my clients are amazing and they're lovely and all of them have stories to tell and it's just interesting what I do. I, I love working with different people and feeling like I'm part of their journey and I have a part to play in what they do. It's an incredibly humbling experience. Yeah. Berenice, it's interesting because you, you say, and quite rightly, and obviously I'm sorry to hear that you, you went the way you did and had rock bottom. Thank and you. I'm going through six rounds of failed IVF and recurrent miscarriages is mm. a lot, yeah, a lot to deal with. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I, I, mm. I, I feel Thank for you. you. I really do. When a door closes for whatever reason, and mm. your reason was pretty, pretty substantial, another door opens. And I think that's maybe your mindset, I think, has, has helped that, do you think, as mm. well? I know that you had PTSD as well. And that is, you know, I, it surrounds us. And I have close friends mm. and family who go have gone through this and are still going through it. But sometimes a door does open and either you take that chance or you don't take it. And it doesn't matter if you don't, but you obviously did. I, I, you said that you discovered your degree. Do you feel very thankful that you took that little cycle I route? I do. To I, do. I, I really do. And actually the lecturer, he's, he's retired now, but Will Hill was the lecturer there at the time. And I'm very grateful to him for his encouragement as well. On the course, it was the first time that I sort of spoke about what I'd been through and reasons for being there. We, we had a module that was all about like a, a what was a collaborative project. I forget what the term was. It's terrible, isn't it? I ought to remember all of this stuff. It was a big part of my life. But it was to do with collaborating. And he had an idea. I went to his office one day and he had an idea for what I could do and started talking. And I said, no, 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 no. No, there's a thing I need to do. I've got to get out of my system. And it's a bit like this. It's something to do with telling the stories of people who have been through childlessness. And he said, oh, and I explained, you know, look, actually, this has happened to me and I need to do this thing. And it turned out to, it became a project, a web-based project, but I'd, I had lots of ideas and maybe it'll come to fruition. I'm not too sure what it will be. I could walk in our shoes. And it was all to do with getting stories and, and taking feet photographs. And that became quite a big thing for my life many years after the master's degree. I stopped it now because the podcast took over and Hella Lovely took over. But it was just something I did. And it was the first time I sort of stood up and said to anybody, look, actually, this happened to me. And there's something here that I can do that's quite powerful for that. So in a way, the design connected to the, the IVF that connected to the master's degree that led to something and and it was just one of those sort of weird yeah. sort of coincidences in life yeah 
Yeah, this yeah. happened actually, the story that you're telling happened to a friend of mine. And I think people will deal with it in one of two ways. Either they will just not really talk about it and not yeah. really want to talk about it. And clearly it must be therapy for you in some way, I think. Is it? Is it some kind of therapy? Because doing a podcast about it and you met, you <laughs> met your, your, your fellow presenters at Fertility Fest. Yeah. What made, what made you go to Fertility Fest? I was invited, actually. I think I went to one of the previous ones. The lady who ran it, um, Jessica Hepburn, is incredible. Swam the English Channel um, to get over her IVF, as as one does. Was recently, I I think she climbed Everest a couple of months ago. Oh, good grief. She's absolutely, her book, 21 Miles, is just brilliant. 21 Miles, Jessica Hepburn, it's amazing. She started this with a friend of hers who has got children and it's all about, it was all about infertility and fertility and educating people about fertility. And they held it at Shepherd's Bush and then the following year was at the Barbican. I went to the Shepherd's Bush when I was invited along. I met Michael, who is one third of the podcast, Michael Hughes. And we met in a pub in Shepherd's Bush. He comes from Australia, born in Essex, comes from Australia. And he's just the loveliest, biggest bear of a man and absolutely just brilliant. I love him to bits. We just immediately kind of clicked and he's just so nice. And I thought, there's something here but there's something I don't want to do but I didn't know quite what it was Mm. and then a year later I met Sarah Lawrence who is the other third of the podcast and she helpfully comes from Kent and from London area which is a bit closer we just got on like a house on fire I'd I'd met her a few times and we chatted to each other online once or twice when she was doing a couple of webinar things and she's a qualified counsellor we saw the BBC Rachel Bland Award. Uh, Rachel Bland presented the Big C. She passed away from cancer and the BBC ran a competition for a podcast and to support it. And Sarah and I scribbled this idea out between us and thought we need somebody else. And men don't have a say in this. You never hear from, from men. You don't really that's hear true. from LGBTQIA plus either with this. And that's something we're very keen to diversify on the podcast. But at the time, we were trying to take in small sort of incremental steps and... Dr. Robin Hadley is a researcher whose PhD is all about broodiness in men. And he says that there's thought to be more childless men than women, but it just isn't talked about. And there actually isn't any data on childless men. I could give you statistics on childless women, roughly 48 million. One in six women are childless, not by choice. But there's nothing around men who are childless, not by choice. So we wanted Michael to be involved. And by that point, we'd created an idea. We got long listed. We didn't get short listed. And we thought, oh, hell, we get on with it. So we did. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. That, that's, that's wonderful. That really is. There's another door mm-hmm. open and not just for yourselves, but for the many people, yeah. as you say, who are childless and need uh, yes. you to reach somewhere. And that's fantastic. This podcast then, exactly what do you want people to get out of the, the podcast that, that you have made and will be producing more? What's oh, sort of the main well, thing for you? Well, oh, there's lots of things, I suppose. I think the first is, yes, to support the community around us and to give them hope. You know, we, we swear, we laugh. We filthy laughs, actually, <laughs> me and Sarah. <laughs> We're very good at swearing. Too. Um, 
Um, so I think to, to kind of give some inspiration, but to also be honest as well, we've talked about everything from racial inequality. We've talked about sex and intimacy. That pops up too. We talked about that. It took us two years to get to that point, but we did talk about it. Aging without children as well. We cover so many things that other people don't talk about because... I think you've got to kind of unpick at these things. It's easy to sit there and go, where is me? But actually you've got to talk about, I think, the political stuff, the funding stuff. There's all the, the, the social absences and the gaps, I think, in social care for people who don't have children and also the mental health um, deficit too. There just isn't enough support out there for people who are grieving and it's a lifelong grief. But also, I think as well as a community, I think it's very much aimed at friends, at family, at colleagues. We talk about work, what it's like to work and to, to be a business owner and to have to go into networking groups. And it might be that everyone else is doing it for the kids. And you think, oh my God, mm. and that can be triggering. It can be really, really upsetting on a bad day, yeah. on an anniversary or at any point in a stage of the recovery, I think, from the trauma of, of loss. I think probably our work will be done when people stop saying, just adopt. I think if 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 we can end that phrase, right. then I think that would yeah. we probably go. Yeah, okay, we're we're done. Do you still find that there's this, cal not callousness, not callousness, people around you, friends and family, just say the wrong things, meaning well, but it's like just adopt or well mm. you'll get over it or, or there's more to life than. Do you find that people still make those kind of comments, and and is it really difficult to hear? Yes. And yes, <laughs> I think it is. I, I think the danger that you have, you do something like a podcast. I, I don't think that my family listen to it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't really sort of tend to sort of ask too much. But um, I think if they did listen to it or they, they heard me talking about it, then I think there's an end, there's sort of a, a point. Oh, well, you're over it then, aren't you? So if you, it's a fine line between being over something, but being able to speak about it and being able to help others. And that's difficult. It, I think it's difficult for other people to understand what that might be like, that it it's something that just lives with you forever. And it's human nature to want to fix, you know, mm -hmm. we're human yeah. beings. I, yeah. I think if I, yes. if I hadn't have had Good kids, point. if I had kids, if, say, the IVF had worked and I met somebody who... It hadn't worked. This actually happened to me, actually, on the St. John Ambulance mental health first aid training, actually, about end of last year, November last year. And the trainer was talking and using a, a child, his children, for every example he could. And I very discreetly asked him, look, you know, don't mind, but actually I'm finding out a little bit tricky because this is my situation. And he kept saying, you know, as parents, you will. And I said, I'm not a parent. Do you mind? And one of the people that was in the class came up to me at the end and she said, oh, I heard what you said. I know it's your IVF and, and I had a child and you ought to try this clinic. Oh. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. No, I, my journey's over. I've moved on and I'm in this particular. Oh, but you should, but you should. No, really, this is an inappropriate conversation. Would you please yeah. not have yeah. this conversation. And I had to start, I think, about three or four times. Yeah. No, please don't. But it's human nature to fix. And ironically, it's a mental health first aid training, yes. but you're not really meant to do that anyway. Um, that was part of the whole thing, you know, fix, you listen, you know. And I thought, oh, God, I'm actually doing better than I thought I was. I should pass this course now. Anyway, but that's an, that happens often in various different ways. If you 
talk about something publicly and it's taken me eight nine years to get to the point between last IVF and doing the podcast and every episode is a form of therapy it's yeah. a form of like oh god should we really be doing this every time we do an episode we think oh crikey I'm sure we shouldn't be it's also still coming to terms with something so people can say stuff they tend to get a very straightforward answer from me now because I've learned to do that and I now just don't not just don't take no prisoners but I will always educate if I can if it's right and appropriate and I think the person will be open to that then I will if they are not because they are defensive and they just keep fixing and fixing and fixing I just walk away because actually yeah fundamentally I have to protect my mental health well you've made some very very Thank good you. valid points there and it's something mm. we should all take away really about actually looking after oneself and not always saying no but saying no when it really is important to say mm-hmm. no and not thinking we ought to do it you've won many awards which the Cambridge Digital Awards and listed as mm. one to watch by Cofinitive and a Digital Women Award winner. And you're also, this is quite interesting too, you're part of Women Who Code. They are all really interesting moments here. But I, I just really want to know the, the part about Women Who Code, it's so sad still that we have to have Women Who Code, but oh, it's I still know. important that we yeah, do that, I isn't agree. it? I I, I mm. kind of have an issue with the fact that there should be women-only groups anyway. I think there's all sorts mm. of conversation routes we could go down, but I think it's all, everyone who can code is important, and I don't think it matters what gender you are. It should mm. be open to all. Statistically, I think it's the same actually with podcasts. I don't know if you knew this, but podcasts have got fewer female presenters than men. There's more men... Um, out there who present podcasts which is why there's one of the things that was listed is the digital women awards and that's again one of those things where it's kind of a, a, a response to kind of the fact that there's so many so many men that that like the sound of their own voice very often i think in podcast land too it gets a bit sort of techie sometimes i think yeah so yeah mm. Berenice, it's been a real (laughs) pleasure to talk to you, you. Linda and I. It has. It's really interesting. It's just been fascinating. And um, your way of thinking in life is is great. And you've just given a little bit of light to it. So thank you so much indeed. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. And coming up next, we'll meet Danny Shell, who set up a business offering affordable advice for employees experiencing issues at work. Cambridge 105 Radio. Join me, Neil Jones, every Tuesday here on Cambridge 105 Radio for the very best from the world of rock. Every week we'll bring you big name interviews, all the latest from the local scene here in Cambridge and the very best rock songs around. It's two hours of rock every single Tuesday from nine o'clock with me, Neil Jones, right here across the city in South Cambridgeshire on Cambridge 105 Radio. Need dropping off at work? Miss the bus and must make that urgent appointment? Need picking up after a night out with your mates? Panther Taxis is your Cambridge-based taxi firm with over 700 drivers, offering great rates and local knowledge, ensuring you make it quickly and safely to your destination. We don't inflate our prices at peak times, and all our drivers accept payments by cash or card. Book your taxi the easy way. Download our free Panther Taxis app through your app store and start booking your taxis on the go. Call Cambridge 715 715 or see panthertaxis.co.uk. Panther Taxis, your local quick release.
reliable and friendly taxi company in the city. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Sarah, one of CKLG's friendly tax advisors. Creating and preserving wealth is an aspiration for many of our clients. In our complex world of changing legislation and family circumstances, we listen and provide you and your family with bespoke tax advice tailored to your needs. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk. CKLG Accountants, your partner in business, your partner in life. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Out of sheer frustration, Dene Shell and her friend Kate Ho created the UK's first legal platform for employees. Vala is the platform's name and Dene is the CEO. Denny is recognised as a disruptive innovator and a rising star in the tech industry and recently launched Valor's new discrimination first aid training course, a first in the UK. There is a whole lot more to Dene, and we are delighted to welcome you, Dene, to Women Making Ways. Hello. Hello, and thank you for such an amazing introduction. So pleased to be here. Wow, it's great to to have you. Yeah, it is. Why did you found Valor, this platform named Valor? What's it all about, Dene? Yeah, so Kate and I created Valor, you know, just like you said, it was, this is really a rage-based company. We created Valor because we were incredibly angry about the fact that we had seen a lot of careers destroyed for women in technology, for marginalized people in tech. You know, we we were senior enough by that point that people would come to us looking for support and advocacy and we saw people being bullied we saw people going through really tough stuff and we dealt with it ourselves and what really shook us was that people didn't seem to be able to do anything about it because they couldn't afford you know a solicitor a law firm the thing that you would originally think to go to do has just become unaffordable for almost everyone and we wanted to do something about that. And so we started digging into, you know, how does this industry work? How might we use the, you know, the technology skills that we have to do something about that? Wow. Do you think that's more prevalent for women then, Dene? Uh, Do you think the the bullying and, and the problems, do you think it's worse for women? Absolutely. Over half of women in the UK have experienced some kind of sexual harassment at work. It's particularly bad as well for people from historically marginalised backgrounds. Um, So pick pretty much any protected characteristic you can think of, you know, race, disability, LGBTQ+. And the stat is generally something like anywhere 60 to 80 percent of people in those categories will report that they have seen opportunities lost because of that protected characteristic or that they have been bullied against 
or you know in some way unfairly treated at work because of that characteristic of theirs. Well, that's shocking, isn't it, really? How did you and your friend Kate, how did you have the confidence that you could really make a difference with Valor? How did this all come about? Obviously, you are a developer marketer. You have an incredible amount of technical experience in the digital world. But how much confidence do you have thinking you could make a difference with Valor? That's a good question. I think on my side, there were a couple of reasons why I thought I could do it. The first one was Kate and I both went through a program called Special Edition that helped women specifically in Scotland in the digital scene to advance to executive or board level positions. And one of the things that they did on this program was they introduced us to a lot of other CEOs who were women. And I remember when I met them, this was four or five years ago, I remember when I met them, I just was gobsmacked because I realized that they were just like me. And, you know, they had the same kinds of problems at a different scale, but they were fundamentally answering the same question. So that gave me a big piece of confidence there that, you know, I could aspire to do something like that. And then the the second thing was, um, we've both worked in startups most of our careers, my entire career. And we've seen a lot of people who don't actually know what they're doing get pretty far. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Interesting. And there was definitely a moment in my life where I was just like, honestly, like, if these idiots can do this, then I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and a, a combination of that. And sometimes, you know, it's a combination of the confidence and the just sheer frustration and determination and I think that's what kind of gave us that necessary mix to say no 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 we can do something about this it, it helped as well that we Kate and I both really understand how startups work and we've been in a lot of them now and so in terms of like the overall kind of how do you put something like like this together we had built our networks and all that kind of stuff so we, we were doing better there and what's your platform like Danae I mean you, you were saying people can't afford but well, you're absolutely right you know to go to law firms but presumably you must need legal support yourselves how, how does that actually work yeah great question so if you go onto Vala and you have an issue, the first thing that you'll see is the free features of our platform, which allows you to really make sense of what's happened to you. So you can build out a chronology or a timeline of, you know, on this date, this thing happened, on this date, this thing happened. And then you can attach evidence and documents, emails, screenshots, all that kind of stuff into that timeline. You can even just actually just forward them in from your phone because most people use Vala from their phone. That's actually what all lawyers use. I mean, essentially we've built a, like a lightweight case management system for consumers rather than for lawyers. So we're giving consumers some of those tools. And then we also have built a ability to then kind of take action once you've made sense of what has happened. So we have a whole library of templates relating to everything from grievances to settlement to employment tribunal documents to allow people, you know, when they want to actually do something to be able to kind of send that professional letter, know how they're supposed to say what they're supposed to say. And finally, we have courses and guidance about, you know, how does this process work? How do I identify the legal aspects of my problem? It's a big holistic platform rather than one specific set of features because people need a lot of different 
pieces of support in order to actually be able to resolve their issue. You're right in the sense that when people do have an issue at work, it's such a minefield to know where to start. So in many ways, Valor is there as the starting point, isn't it? Absolutely. And we, we can take people all the way through from the initial stage. We call it the is this legal stage that they first start with. Like, you know, that bad thing happened. Was that was that legal? Um, all the way through to, I want to do something about this. What are my options? To, I want to take action. To, okay, I'm, I'm actually in the process now. I need to kind of move through this process. And, and almost all cases never go all the way through the process to, you know, like a hearing at the end. Um, typically they settle somewhere along the way. Yeah. And we support with that as well. For the employers to have their employees have this backup from you as Vala. How how are they approached this this knowledge that you're out there? We don't really know yet. We don't engage directly with the employers, and so we don't know exactly. I do know how some investors have reacted. Okay, go on then. Tell us that one. <laughs> I think um, I think there's definitely a like a subset of people that I tell about Vala who suddenly get very afraid. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I don't even think it's necessarily the bad actors. I think it's people who just suddenly think, oh, goodness, I get a lot of questions about, you know, bogus claims and things like that. And then I also get questions about, you know, is this going to be turned against me in some way? And the thing that I always say to people like that is if I could just show them a sliver of the stories that we hear every day, mm. you know, there's there's nothing bogus about the pain that is happening. And, and in fact, especially on TikTok, which we found to be um, one of the biggest places that people can find us. There is just this untapped, awful, like seam of pain that's been running through all kinds of situations in the country. And it feels kind of like we've touched a live wire and they're all there kind of coming to us and asking, how can you help me? What can I do next? You know, how do I use this? So far, we're really just thinking about that side of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Do, do you ever get surprised by the stories that you hear from people? Because, you know, you would think in this day and age, most employers particularly would be, you know, trying to be whiter than white with, with regards to the law and stay on the right side of the law. So, does it ever surprise you, some of the stories that you hear? I could turn your hair blue. <laughs> <laughs> it, it surprises me every day. I mean... I think that's the common assumption, I think, Linda, that this is a almost a relic of the past, the, the kind of treatment that we've heard about and that, you know, we're in a modern society and people don't treat each other that way now. I'm sure that that is the case in some employers. There are some great employers out there, but the stories that we hear on a day-to-day -day basis show that there are so many people who are just not being held accountable for their actions. And when I think about the impact that really... I want Vala to have on the world, it's creating that accountability, creating consequences for that kind of behaviour so that we all know that it's, it's not okay in this modern society. It almost strikes me, actually, you know, that you could almost produce a sister site to this aimed at employers who want advice, you know, on how to do Because there are difficult situations sometimes. You know, I've, I, I've been a manager in the past and I've had people reporting to me. And I know you do sometimes get situations that are incredibly sensitive and difficult to handle. And sometimes you can't really see a way around it, you know. 
Oh yeah, and we, we have thought about that. I think there is a future universe where we could do something like that. I think the big goal for Vala though is that this isn't just about employers and employees. This is also about landlords and tenants. This is also about pretty much anywhere where people are being treated as if no one is going to hold them to account and that people should have the recourse of the law, but they don't have access to that justice. And so we've talked a lot about, you know, do you go deep into employment or do you go broad across all those different issues? Right now, our hypothesis is that we should, you know, go broad so that tenants have the same kind of access to support that we're giving employees right now. Because a lot of these problems are, on the face of it, very similar in terms of, you know, the legality, the, the laws change, but the way that you address solving the problem is exactly the same. You have been awarded as a disruptive innovator and a rising star at the same time. And disruptive innovator is, is a fascinating phrase. It is the mm. saying of the moment. Are you quite proud of yourself for that one? Do you like that? It's interesting. Um, in my world, disruption is a word that's thrown around a lot. Um, I would say generally I view the term pretty cynically. I've actually spent my entire career building software that either unbundles or disintermediates professional services. And what really strikes me about the work that we're doing in the legal industry is we are fundamentally changing the delivery model of legal services by what we're doing at Vala. And by rebuilding that delivery model, we are then making legal services affordable for a group of the market, which is most of the market that just couldn't access the traditional delivery model because it was just unsustainable. It's with a traditional kind of solicitor's setup, you just can't reduce costs to the point of what the market needs for most of the market. And so sometimes I kind of squint at that term, but I do think actually we are genuinely disrupting that kind of fundamental delivery model that you know most of the industry works to. I don't think that the law firms will be losing customers to you. I think they're, they're customers that they would never have had to begin with because they would see how much the fees were and they would just go, no, I can't even go there, you know. That's exactly it. And it's, yeah. that is exactly what we learned when we were in the accounting industry. Because I, I was right there on the ground really early on, on the online accounting days. And it was, it was like a bit of a pitched battle between the software and the um, kind of accountants. And they said, you know, you're trying to steal our customers and eat our lunch and things like that. And what actually happened was that the industry grew. Like if you look at the CAGR for the accounting industry over the past 10 years, it's massive. Like it has gotten so huge because software has essentially reshaped the accounting industry, but it's allowed it to access markets it never had access to before. I completely agree with you, Linda. I think that's exactly what's going to happen in the, um, in the legal industry as well. Yeah. And I think it probably frees people up to do more interesting work as well. If you're a lawyer or if you're an accountant, because, you know, you, you haven't got the, the simple things to do. You're, you're, you're more sought after when it gets to a point where they actually do need legal advice or accounting advice. Yeah. And we, we've got big plans for that because once you support a consumer to be able to understand their legal issue, to articulate it, to manage it and own it themselves, then when they do still need some legal advice, some actual legal advice, not the organizational stuff that law firms have to do, all that kind of stuff, then when you present that to a lawyer, 
you know, it's wrapped up in a bow. It's so much easier for them to actually take a look at that case, assess the merits of the case, and then deliver that advice, which again makes it more affordable and means that they're actually getting to do legal work and not organizational work or even therapy. Because there's a lot of emotional support that people need that lawyers are kind of having to take on at the moment. And, you know, that's that's not what their job really is. Yeah. I wonder if you could just give us an anonymous case study, the journey that just one particular. So that it's in our so we're able to understand a particular journey. So you have a client that comes to you and you the journey that they have taken a successful journey are you able to do that for yeah, us yeah i sure can so i'll give you an example of someone who came to us she had just been dismissed and she was new to the company that she had worked at she had been there for i think it was about say 6 months or something like that um the first 3 or 4 months everything was great she was the star new employee she was a really senior role, she was making big changes and everybody was happy, the bosses were happy, everything was good. So this this woman is a, a woman of colour. And then some of the other employees who weren't white came to her and said, you know, we actually have a few issues and now that you're here and, you know, it's so great to see someone in your senior position, there's a few things that we want to talk to you about. So she raised those issues to her employer and immediately got a very defensive, very negative reaction of, oh, you know, this is a great place to work. I don't understand why they would be complaining or something along those lines. And then the treatment of her turned on its head overnight. And suddenly it went from, you're doing an amazing job, we value you, etc., to you've used the wrong font in this document, <laughs> which is unacceptable. You have um, handled this meeting incorrectly, which is unacceptable like really small, really awful kind of just like constant criticism, constant picking at her. And within, you know, within I think a month or two of um, having raised this issue, she was dismissed for poor performance. And she came to us after she had been dismissed and um, she had already done some Googling and she said, you know, I think this was a race discrimination case and I think that victimization was involved. And I want everyone to know what victimization is because I think it's so important to know. So if you raise an issue like that at work to do with any kind of protected characteristic, so gender, age, LGBTQ status, things like that, if you raise an issue and say, hey, I think this is a problem, some kind of discriminatory problem, and your employer then treats you unfairly as a result of that complaint, that is illegal. That's called victimization. And so she said, well, I've already left. It's going to take me a while to find a similar job. So they're offering me just my standard notice, but I'd like some more pay, basically. And we said, okay, we've got this letter template. It's called a without prejudice letter, and it's often how people open settlement negotiations why don't you buy that template? We offer this service called a peace of mind check where you can kind of work with us and we help you fill in the template and then you can send that off and kind of go from there. And she did that and she also um, used ACAS to conciliation to kind of keep the, uh, the threat of tribunal open, if that makes sense. And um, she ended up settling with her employer and she got exactly what she asked for. I think she got what she needed and was really quite happy with the outcome there. So yeah, that's... Um, that's an example of how this can work. Thank you. That, that's, yes, uh, that's, that's really interesting. That's yeah. yeah, very interesting. Denita, let's talk about then how you are where you are now, because you are from Tennessee in the USA, North Carolina. As a young woman, you taught yourself 
to code on a computer in your family. So how did this all come about? Why did you want to teach yourself to code and how did you get there? Every stereotype that you might think of in your head when you hear Appalachian Mountains, Tennessee, um, hillbilly, thing like that, that's, that's where I grew up. So I used to talk like this. <laughs> that's great. Every, everything that you can possibly think of um, is true and was my upbringing. And I had this wonderful grandmother who loved to do garage sales. Um, or I guess more kind of car boot sales over here. And every Saturday morning, she would read the newspaper, find out where everybody's doing their um, yard sales and garage sales, and she'd go out and do all of her shopping. And I was um, already a pretty precocious kid. I loved to read and things like that. And she found a computer that someone was selling. And this was, this was an Apple IIe. So this was back in the day. Nobody had computers. And she saw it was a bargain and she thought, well, Danae's smart. She might like that. And so she brought it home and my mom plugged it in and I had the first computer on the street and I was immediately kind of taken with it. I remember I was probably, goodness, I can't remember. I was a very young teenager, maybe 13 or something. The first application I remember writing was from my journal. I wrote a diary application so that I could keep a journal without my brother being able to read it. <laughs> It's a great idea. <laughs> and so I, I was pouring my teenage angst out in this Apple Basic code. <laughs> and then, you know, AOL came and the internet came and I was just fascinated with all of it. And it, it really did seem to me, and it became my ticket out of there. I, I never really thought I was going to stay in Appalachia. The place that I grew up in, it's most people never leave. My family, they grew up in the hills. Like my mom didn't have access to running water until she was maybe in high school. Like we're, we're talking like proper rural mountain mm -hmm. people. And so I really, I was fascinated with technology and I also appreciated that it, it would get me places. And so I just, I just read all the little books, you know, there were maybe like three books at the time that could teach you how to code and bang my head against the wall and just learned how to do it. Now, I also read somewhere that you created Knickers. This is a lingerie blog that mm. came to be the first online publication for lingerie in Europe. And it was ranked number one for the term Knickers on Google for five years. Explain yourself, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this, this was such an interesting time on the internet. And I don't know about everyone else, but because I grew up as the internet was, was starting, I've kind of lived my entire life online. And I guess I'm probably the first generation who did that. And so when I moved over here, it was really early on when I moved over here, there was this new thing called blogging. There was a little bit of it before I moved. And then the new thing was not just blogging, but it was called pro blogging. And, and it was this brand new profession that you could do because Google had just launched AdWords and AdSense and the ability for you to put an ad on your website and earn money for the clicks. Like this whole industry was just nascent at the time. And at the same time, I had, I had started dating this guy and he was like, oh, you know, do you have any like nice lingerie or anything like that? And I, you know, I'm a hillbilly from Tennessee. I don't have anything nice. So I went and got um, bra sized in, I don't know, Marks and Spencer's, Jenner's, something like that. And they said, oh, well, you're a, I can't remember, something G. And I was horrified. I have never, like in America, a G cup is some kind of like alien thing. And there was this incredible amount of like 
almost like shame and confusion I had about this bra size. And I went online and I was trying to find like women talking to other women about lingerie. And all I found was honestly just porn. And I was like, no, this isn't okay. And, and so I started writing about, ostensibly about a lingerie, but it was really about bra sizing, confidence, helping women feel confident about the body that they have rather than the body that they wish they had and luxury lingerie specifically. And I remember that the first year, it turns out there was this thing called the Salon de la Lingerie, which is like this huge trade show in Paris. And I basically blagged my way into this <laughs> with some of my friends. And I was wandering around with this press badge that just said knickers on it. Which <laughs> and people would be like, you know, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm here for a blog. And they're like, what's a blog? And so the first year I was there, I was explaining to everyone what a blog was. You know, five years later, by the time I was going there, then everybody was like, oh, Nika's blog, come have champagne. Like, there was like this whole, like the whole industry had grown up. Everybody knew what it was. Everybody got online publishing. And I had built this audience of luxury lingerie lovers who, you know, were fascinated with like, what's the latest thing coming out of all of these like indie designers and things. So yeah, I, that's how I learned online marketing. That's how I learned content um, and SEO. It was all something I was doing on the side when I was working at Napier. Danny, it's been great talking to you. It really has. Thank you both, um, Susie and Linda. That's all we have time for today on Women Making Waves. Our thanks to our guests, Berenice Smith and Danae Shell. Now, we're always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives, so please do contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at WomenMakingWaves. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews.